Hello and welcome to an edition of the Sitcom Club. John and myself, Mooncat, is Ocho. But first, an advert for the League of Regrettable Superheroes. Pardon? Today, we're going to deal with a piece of information, and I had to put out a special appeal on Twitter to get this information. And the information was supplied to me by John Morris, author of a new book called The League of Regrettable Superheroes. And it's about some of those lesser on people, people you're not going to see burning up your cinema screen, like Captain America and Thor. People like Skate Man. He has on roller skates. It's not like he has the powers of the fish called Skate. I was actually thinking of Ice Skate. The Red Bee with the power to outsource continuity from the BBC. No, that's something different, isn't it? <laughs> the Red Bee who <laughs> fights crime with a bee hidden in his belt. And it says here the bee is called Michael, which is a bit like Bootle Saddles. A horse called Kenneth. <laughs> Got a bee called Michael. <laughs> John Morris is behind the website Gone and Forgotten, which deals with some of the goofy areas of comics. But now it's out there in a paper website called a book, The League of Regrettable Superheroes by John Morris. John Morris is also involved in a podcast, Just One More Thing. It's all about Columbo. It's very amusing. At one point, they used the phrase Columbo Sex Night. What's not to like? You can find that at thecitydesk.net slash just one more thing. And The League of Regrettable Superheroes is published by Quirk Books, and it's available at all the places you expect books to be available, including that very famous website. I had to do that because it's a piece of information I needed. It will turn up later during our main sitcom discussion. I see, yes, and I think I've got an idea as to what this might be. But before we get down to the topic in hand, by the way, when are we going to discuss Mrs. Columbo? We can if you like. We can do that on Jaffa Cakes one time. I found that oddly interesting because I knew that Columbo himself wasn't going to appear at any point and that felt weird, even though he was being discussed. Yes, and his cigars would be left around and he saw his car and his dog. Are there any photographs of Peter Falk in the household, for example? Do you ever see anything like that? Oh, that's a good one. I've only seen one episode and nothing leapt out at me. I didn't see any pictures. Well, actually, just to pick up on a tweet we had from Lapsed Cat about sometime we really need to do a show about the idea of secondary characters who should have had their own spin-offs. And I think that's a great idea and we'll do it. Yes. But just before we get to that, here's a really terrible idea for a sitcom. Mrs. Mannering. Ah, <sighs> uh, Yeah. Especially if you get an actress who looks nothing like any description we have of Elizabeth Mannering. Are you a fan of tennis, Ocho? No. I don't mind about tennis, but I don't like it interrupting my sitcom viewing. And unfortunately, it's tennis season on the BBC at the moment, so for a solid month, we've got no afternoon classics. And the timing, I have to say, is appalling because they just started showing Wrong Are You Being Served, namely Series 8 from 1981. If you were to watch all of Are You Being Served, with the exception of Series 8, then it would look sort of normal. There'd be a natural progression. And Mr. Humphreys, for example, he worked his way up to be the head of the menswear counter. And eventually the cast sort of contracts a little bit and we no longer see Mr. Grace. There's a little bit less of just like the general comings and goings and it concentrates on the core group, apart from the appearance of Jess Conrad. However, 
Series 8 is a real oddity, and we've only had two episodes of it on BBC Two so far. I'll be back in about probably two weeks' time after Wimbledon. We often talk in the sitcom club about cast changes, and usually the ones that are in our heads and aren't actually real. But there are lots and lots of cast changes now being served, and particularly in this series. For example, we've got Milo Sperber, Polish actor, who arrives as Mr. Grossman. And then he leaves halfway through the series. Gets replaced by a Glaswegian actor called Benny Lee. Debbie Linden turns up as Mr. Grace's secretary and then leaves and is replaced by Louise Burton, formerly assistant to Derek Hobson on TSW's networked game show That's My Dog, as referenced in Only Fools and Horses. See, they're all connected. And the biggest change of all, of course, is that we have old Mr. Grace, played by Kenneth Waller, namely Grandad in Bread. So you've got all of this upheaval going on, and also there's just something I can't quite put my finger on with regard to this series. There's something not quite right about the lighting in the shop floor. There may be somebody out there who knows more about these things, so if you do happen to know, get in touch. Tweet us at the sitcom club. At the moment on BBC4, they've just hit the point in the Top of the Pops repeats from 1980 where industrial action had taken off the air for about nine weeks. And the catalyst for that was a series of cutbacks at the BBC at that time. You remember, of course, Ocho, that BBC had regional continuity up until 1980. And then, of course, it went as part of the cuts. Now, I'm just wondering, obviously, they didn't make any cuts as severe as anything that was going to fundamentally alter the appearance of their shows in the lighting department. But I just wonder if perhaps some sort of change was made around about that point, because I being served aired in spring of 1981. So I'm just wondering perhaps if they were experimenting with something a little bit different. Because when you then jump forward to series nine in 1983, everything looks normal again. But I just, I can't quite put my finger on it. It's just something there. Sometimes you see like shadows in place and, and it's just, it's very, very difficult to put my finger on this. But if you know about these things, if you know that, for example, BBC started using either different lighting or different cameras or something like that for a temporary period. We've spoken before about how some shows from the late 1980s and early 1990s have a really sort of grey washed out sort of look. I think we discussed that when we are talking about Mulberry, for example. Is something you see when you see repeats of Waiting for God, things like that, of that particular era. BBC shows have just got a very drab look about them. So, if you happen to know, let us know. Tweet us at the Sitcom Club or email us, feedback at sitcomclub.com. But definitely watch it when it comes back on. It'll be on after Wimbledon. Wasn't there some sitcom that went to Cardiff for a series? That was Teddy and June. Ah. The last series was recorded at BBC Wales. I think that was because of the asbestos problem at Television Centre at that time. But we're far, far from Television Centre, or even BBC Wales today. Why am I being so arch about it? We talked about it last week, what we were doing, didn't we? Yes, we did. And we are, once again, returning to Cook and Mortimer's Finest Hour, or at least an extension of that, via Thames TV, Man About the House, via Freeze Company. We are arriving at the new door of the Ropers, a.k.a. George and Mildred. We're looking at the ABC adaptation from 1979. Because we generally don't do American shows and other things in place for an eventual sitcom club USA, but occasionally, whenever there's some traditionally American holiday, 
Previously, it's been Thanksgiving. This time, it's almost but not quite the 4th of July, the day this podcast goes live. Maybe we'll do another one Thanksgiving. Maybe we'll do uh, Mexican sitcoms when we get close to September 16th. We've missed Cinco de Mayo. but Oh, well, you know what we've got to do for that, don't you? El Chavo del Ocho or... El Chapulín Colorado? Or? No, the, the the first one. Okay. I can't pronounce. That one. Yes, we've got to do that. So it's just one of our little opportunities to watch one of those American sitcoms, and especially as we recently did Man About the House, and we had a lot to say about George and Mildred Roper, and I think that's what started us thinking about Helen and Stanley Roper and their big differences. Are you aware of anything Brian Murphy has said about preparation or characterization? For George Roper? I'm afraid I am not. I'm sorry to spring that on you. I can't remember what bit of info I was looking for. I found there was a big chunk of a book about Three's Company on Google Books, not all of it. And one bit jumped out at me. There was a little inset. The stars on their characters. Norman Fell on Stanley Roper. I was thinking of a guy I really knew in Philadelphia. The clothes are all wrong. But to describe him is tough. He was innocent and a guy who just can't do things right, whether it's being with a woman or fixing something. And yet he thought he was the cat's meow. He thought he was attractive. He liked his clothes. He thought people were looking at him because of how well-preserved he looked. He thought he was all the things he's not. He's all just lies. But innocent, that's how I remember him. That's very different from George Roper, isn't it? Yes, it is. And that's the first thing that strikes you about the Ropers is that the dynamic is different. Even though... Helen says to Stanley in the first episode, sometimes I think I'm too hard on you, Stanley. She really isn't as tough on Stanley as Mildred is on George at all. Whereas George is... I think that probably George and Stanley are the same when it comes to like the sort of conniving element in them. But where George is... What I'm getting at here is that George Stanley... George is a weasel. Just, yes, where Stanley just seems to be fed up a great deal of the time. Quite often Helen is trying to coax him out of it. And so things like, for example, the first episode. The first episode is a straightforward adaptation of the first episode of George and Mildred. Helen wants to go and look at this house because they're moving on. And here Helen's asking Stanley. She's saying, come on, let's have a look at the house. Come on, consider it. At least let's go and have a look at it and so on. Whereas Mildred just tells George, just sort yourself out, get your trousers on. We're going. So there was to it. And, okay, she ends up having to arrive in Jerry's van, which she didn't plan on, but nonetheless, the, the possibility of George not attending the viewing just wasn't an option at all. So the dynamic's a little bit different here. There's a telling thing in the first episode of either show. There's that bit where they're talking about Robin and Chrissy and Joe, or Jack and Chrissy and the other one, they're talking about the original show, talking about Man About the House, Three's Company. And Jeffrey thinks that they're talking about their own children and makes some allusion that he's under the impression that Mr. Roper is their father. In George and Mildred, it's George who says, oh, no, they've all got different fathers because George is stupid. It's Helen who says it in The Ropers. She's that naive. Mildred Roper would not make that mistake. Or if she did, she'd immediately start gabbling and covering up for it. Do you think the show suffers for that? I do a bit, yes, because it's entertaining seeing Mildred constantly having to sort out George. 
one way or another because he's usually cocked something up or he's said the wrong thing or whatever it may be. And you know that if he does try anything conniving or whatever it may be, you know he's going to get one hell of a hiding when he gets back indoors. Whereas sometimes Helen just seems more put out by Stanley's I wish actions. I'd rewatched that Three's Company rewatched because that involves catching the Roper man out uh, with a dirty magazine and I can still remember Mildred's you dirty little devil <laughs> and I'm just trying to think of I can't remember what Helen's reaction was but I can't imagine her doing that and now he tried to be terribly nice on this show so what I'm saying is I don't want to lay too much blame at the door of Audra Lindley because I think she's doing the job she was originally there to do, which is just occasionally set up something funny and John Ritter's going to be the one to take it over the line and get the laugh. She wasn't there to develop a complex characterization that would eventually support its own spin-off. Now, I don't know why things happen differently in Man About the House. Maybe there's a point. I don't really know enough about Audra Lindy or Norman Fell, but I think it's very telling that Brian Murphy and Youth Joyce come from John Littlewood's theatre group. Well, you're not making any noise like you think it's interesting. No, I, no, I am. I am. I'm, no, you're I'm out there. I can hear you breathing. Well, don't you think it's interesting that they came from what was seen at the time as a very kind of cutting edge, politicised, different, real way of doing theatre? I don't know if anything they did would be described as method because I've not studied that too much, but I think there was a certain reaction. Can we start talking about the difference between American acting and British acting. Well, I want to ask you something specifically about that. I'm not in favour of too many slogans or stereotypical expressions like this, but I think it's pertinent in this point. The hen-pecked husband. Now, certainly that's something that you get, for example, in Lauren Hardy, for example. And it's something that we've seen many, many a time in British sitcoms. I'm thinking of, for example, say Peggy Mount. Is that something which is so common in American sitcoms? Let me give you a couple of examples of things that Mildred says to or in relation to George. For example, the second episode of George and Mildred, where they end up in the next door neighbours whilst they've got their guests there. At one point, Mildred just turns to George and says, SIT! (laughs) In Man About the House, when George has been conniving with Jerry to turf Robin, Chrissy and Joe out so that they can then split up the flat into smaller areas. Mildred hears about this because she's been away and says, oh, what's that little bugger up to now? <laughs> now, I don't get that same level. I wouldn't say vitriol. I don't think that's quite the right word. I think that Mildred has long since passed the point of being surprised at anything that George does, but she certainly isn't going to tolerate it, whereas you get the impression with Helen with regard to Stanley, that she knows that he's either going to be up to something or he's going to put his foot in it or whatever it may be, but she just has a sort of air of resignation about it. And I don't think that that is quite as appealing. I don't think that that produces the same comedic value as... You you, you just know if George Roper does or says something wrong, you know that he's got hell to pay and he's not going to be let off the hook. And that's part of the fun of Man About the House and George and Mildred. So the dynamic is a little bit different. It takes a while to get used to it. After a while, you do sort of get used to it. But I don't think that 
the dynamic in the ropers is as good as George mode. Actually, one weird thing I kept thinking was that one of the problems was the age gap between Audra Lindley and Norman Fell. And then I looked it up and it's like, actually, no, she's older than him. But that doesn't come across. I didn't really pick up on there being any significant age gap. It just no. felt that she was just slightly too young in her ways. Because I think Norman Fell is really great. He seems to have picked up his part and run with it a lot more. There's just something about his snarling anger. Though at the beginning of the first episode, it looked like he'd gone a bit gaga. That was a very odd moment when he's drawing the beard on the mirror and pulling faces. <laughs> you pick a bit off the cactus and eat it, Stanley. <laughs> now, at what point are we going to acknowledge one of Stanley slash Norman Fell's traits? Which I think occasionally <laughs> Brian Murphy does this, but not as often. When I say not as often, there is actually a YouTube video, which has unfortunately been made with a camera pointed at the screen, so it's not very good. But someone has compiled all the instances in which Stanley Roper looks straight down the lens in the Ropers. Now, the first time we saw that, we thought it was a mistake. Then you, and you found one, and it looked like he was turning away to laugh over his shoulder and they'd cut to the wrong camera. It's hard to know, was maybe that the first one, or was that just a fourth wall look that misfired but then after a while yes that's definitely that the effect they're going for is he looks right at you <laughs> i think i sent you this once i think there's an episode that involves them getting a, a puppy i think it is and there's just a little piece of dialogue and helen gives her line and stanley responds with a gag and then there's like a little sort of half second pause and then then it comes, then you think, oh, he's not going to do it this time. No, he, hang on, he is. At first, he's not even smiling, and it's like, yeah, <laughs> zinger. <laughs> but that is definitely a highlight. And I sort of wish that he did that with every line. <laughs> I'm just looking at uh, the Wikipedia entries. I should have done better research for this, shouldn't I? Get arrogant. You start turning up thinking you're going to wing it, even though I do have notes and a piece of information I gleaned. John Morris, author of The League of Regrettable Superheroes. Now, Audra Lindley said she started out as a stand-in and then did stunt work at Warner Brothers and then moved up to being on camera. Norman Fell, it says he was part of the actor's studio. This is probably all a coincidence. It doesn't really line up, but it seems interesting that he seems to be more of a piece with Brian Murphy and Eutha Joyce. They're really inhabiting the parts and I wonder if he's really really thought about his characterization more than you normally would in a show like that I don't know I don't want it to seem like I'm ragging on Audra Lindley I just think the time to build Helen Roper up into a character suitable for spin-off was long before the spin-off happened and they couldn't foresee that interestingly it was Norman Fell was the one who didn't want to do it now I know that I shouldn't really be citing a tv movie about Free's Company as research, but I'm going to anyway. The impression that comes across from that is exactly as you say that Norman Fell had reservations because leaving a show as successful as Free's Company, obviously, is a gamble. And I don't think I know sure that the agreement that they reached was that if the Ropers was cancelled in its first season, then the Ropers could return to Free's company. 
Now, for the purpose of this podcast, we've just concentrated on series one of The Ropers, which is only six episodes. Whereas season two has, I believe, 22 episodes. And when it was cancelled, of course, Don Knotts is already established as the new landlord in Free's company. So in a way, it was a sort of a raw deal for Norman Fell and Audrey Lindley. They did show up in one further episode of Free's company. But yeah, I can sort of understand they wouldn't be best pleased about that. Wouldn't be best pleased. I wouldn't blame them if they started trashing stuff. I think you said they make an appearance on Three's Company. I wouldn't have blamed them if it had been unscheduled. <laughs> and they just appeared by pushing down a wall. That's screwed by the network. Come on. We should also discuss the next door neighbor. Well, that's a thing. Yes. That's one thing I want to... Because there's there's definitely a big difference between Jeffrey's. Having said about how George Roper is Little Weasel and Stanley Roper is more aggressive, Jeffrey Four Mile is definitely the more aggressive Jeffrey. Yeah, whereas Jeffrey P. Brooks III, played by Jeffrey Tambor. He's prissy. Yeah. He's uptight. And do you think that says anything interesting about the difference between the British and American class systems? In the dialogue, it's much more about. Jeffrey Brooks being socially aspirational and belonging to maybe this club or knowing that person and so on. Now, Jeffrey Formal does that kind of thing as well, but, you know, he sat there reading the Daily Telegraph and making comments about Anthony Witchwood Ben, for <laughs> example. It's very, very clear from the outset that there's a straightforward class difference. Well, maybe that's the thing, is it's almost the way you talk that decides your class in the UK. Is it a cultural difference rather than a class difference in the Ropers? No, it's definitely a class difference. Stanley Roper is blue collar. And Jeffrey P. Brooks III aspires to be somewhere, you know, the upper middle class. I don't think the difference between upper and lower middle class is quite as well defined in the US. But I'm just wondering if there's some kind of aggression you can show in British social climbers, because as long as you say it in a nice enough accent... It will not make you appear to have dropped down a step. Whereas where everybody sounds the same, too much aggression, and you'll start sounding blue-collar. What I'm saying is, I can quite understand why Jeffrey P. Brooks never killed Stanley Roper. I'm actually quite surprised that George Roper survived to episode three. Because there's <laughs> definitely this... Now, yeah, there's something of the night about Jeffrey Fourmile. <laughs> I think even just his still photograph, in the credits of George and Mildred, he just looks unsettling. That's the point at which the red mist is descending. Now all bets are off. Well, you know, it's my little fascination with the phases of different actors' careers. Talking last time about Reggie Perrin and how Sue Nichols had come out of her Dolly Bird phase when she's playing Joan. And in Man About the House, Eutha Joyce has come out of her experienced older woman. Cougars as Roy Clark became aware they're called. <laughs> and then before that, she'd had her own Dolly Bird phase. And immediately before George and Mildred, Norman Eshley was in his nice, handsome young man phase. And then they put the moustache on him, and he's a cold-blooded killer. 
No, I do remember one really frightening thing where this, the camera's kind of closely zooming in and he gets a little glint in his eye. Gets a little bit of a Bernard Hepton thing going. <laughs> but didn't I once suggest for Jeffrey Fourmile Anthony Valentine? He might be aggressive, he might be dark, but he's not kinky. <laughs> i tell you something, though, and I don't, I don't want to get too bogged down in any discussion about Larry Sanders, because I suspect that when Sitcom Club USA eventually arrives, that may well be one of the first shows that we talk about on there. But I would much rather deal with Jeffrey P. Brooks III than Hank Kingsley. Well, he's not just an idiot, he's nasty. If you said something to offend Jeffrey Brooks, then he'd make it clear that he was offended, and he'd just say what he had to say there and then, whereas Hank Kingsley would probably smile, and then when everybody else was out of earshot, he'd whisper something to you in a very sort of threatening manner. And yeah, so I, I would rather deal... Maybe we'll do a, a show one day about the parts of Jeffrey Tambor. Then we'll start talking about Arrested Development and so on. And I haven't seen Transparent, so I can't come on. Have you, you've seen that, haven't you? I you see didn't actually there? finish the first episode. You're partway through the first episode. <laughs> okay, yes, fine. That's optimistic of you. That's actually a quotation. That's a quotation from a piece on The Onion about a fellow who went onto eBay in the middle of the night and he has no recollection of doing this but he appears to have bought uh, VHS copies of every single episode of a sitcom called, I think it's called Mama's Family yes. with Vicky Lawrence and uh, amongst the text where he's trying to piece together this lost night of buyer's remorse, then it says that he is currently partway through the first episode. So I think this difference leaves Anne Brooks very little to do compared to Anne Formile. Anne Brooks, played by Patricia McCormick, is just, she's just a nice sitcom mom, And she seems to be permanently sunny and cheerful. And I really need to see the movie The Bad Seed, because she's in that. She's a child actress, and I think her character murders somebody. It's very brutal. Oh, she murders more than one person. And you know the end credits of the Railway Children, where they all come on at the end and sort of wave goodbye? Yes. Well, at the end of The Bad Seed, this quite disturbing movie about a child who murders people, they all come out at the end and somebody gets the murderous child and gives her a spanking. <laughs> it's, it's like a post-credits gag. It's not... <laughs> now, just think about what you've done. When we're talking about going straight, I deliberately misrepresented the appearance of Prison Officer Mackay in episode one, suggesting that he just wandered on to wish Fletcher all the best in his new series. In episode 6 of series 1 of The Ropers, we do, in fact, have that situation effectively. Well, we mentioned it last time on Going Straight that Stanley goes, Hey, look, everybody, it's Larry from Three's Company. <laughs> uh, it would have been so nice if they'd just done that. It would have been so just... nice if it had been the wrong Larry. If it been mad about the house, Larry. Well, when we talked about Map of the Sitcom Universe, and I said the US and UK, they have to stay in separate universes, we know that they're separate because Sharkman is published by different publishers. <laughs> In the US, David Brooks, son of Jeffrey and Anne, is reading Sharkman, but it's not really Sharkman. It's a copy of Marvel Premiere number 47 that somebody has put a Sharkman logo over the top of. Meanwhile, some years earlier, back in the UK, Tristram Formile, now there's a thing to discuss, the name is reading Sharkman, and that's actually Claw the Unconquered, published by DC Comics. Claw the Unconquered, issue 5. 
with shark men put over the top. And that's a piece of information I gleaned from John Morris, author of The League of Regrettable Superheroes. thing is, if you look carefully, they haven't even fully covered the claw logo. (laughs) (laughs) Are they trying to subtly indicate something to us? George and Mildred takes place in the DC universe and the Ropers takes place in the Marvel universe. But hang on a second, who's that company that published the Mighty Mouse comic? Oh, it's probably somebody like Gold Key. Nobody, that was them. Nobody yeah, that talks was them. about Gold Key. Well, I'm talking about them right now. For people such as myself, you're going to have to give a brief explanation as to what is the difference between the Marvel and DC comic universe. Who publishes them? <laughs> one's published by one company and one's published by the other. Yeah, it didn't quite mean that brief. Would you say that... I'd have probably got them the wrong way around. But would you say that Tristan is a Marvel kid, whereas David is a DC kid? It's the other way around. around? Okay, Let's talk about something more interesting. Tristram. Tristram. That name tells you so much about the social aspirations of Jeffrey Fourmile. And I can't think of an American equivalent. I can't think of a name of an American I would meet that would immediately tell me about the social aspirations of their parents. Unless... Their first name is actually their mother's maiden name. That's sometimes an indication of a thing that's done by old money, but even then, probably not so much. There seems to be a bigger variety of first names in the US. Okay, hang on a second. I'm having a wee look now at character names in National Lampoon's Animal House because there's clearly supposed to be a difference in the background of some students. Is that in the East Coast, though? Because once you get right into the northeast, yeah, I guess if we want to go to Gilligan's Island, Thurston P. Howell, yes. Well, of course, the fact that Geoffrey P. Brooks III, I suppose that's giving you an indication in his own name of a pretension, which wouldn't work in the UK. If you add the third to the end of your name in the UK, everybody thinks you're pretending to be an American. Okay, you know, speaking of class, Helen's sister, does she come across the same as... Mildred's sister? Because I get the impression of Mildred's sister that it's more along the lines of she's got airs and graces whereas her husband hasn't. Husband's well, very down to earth. He's a self-made you, Yes, that's the thing. He's self-made. Perversely, I would say that Mildred's sister is comes across slightly lower class because she just seems to think conspicuous consumption gives her a certain air of nobility and only somebody who's dead common would do that. Yes. It reminds me a little bit of Miss Brahms having been an elocution course and when she then tries to use her new lexicon, customer says back to her, how dare you try and imitate me? Because she knows that she's putting it on and it doesn't sound quite right. She reminds me a little bit of what's the name of Thelma's friend in What I've Happened to Like Lads? She's married somebody who went to a minor public school. Yeah, only somebody common would actually tell you how well off they're doing. Somebody with genuine aspirations adds an unnecessary digit to the end of their surname or calls their son Tristram. And I do apologise if there are any Tristrams listening. (laughs) There's no shame in it. It is actually possible that Tristram himself is listening. We've seen a photograph of Nicholas Bondowen alongside Norman Ashley and Brian Murphy just about, I think it was last year, wasn't it? At uh, convention. Now that is... Tied. Joint first place for greatest photograph ever taken. And the other one you've just sent me through. I'll post a link to both that and also the photograph I've just sent Ocho, which is of Audra Lindley and Eufa Joyce together 
in London. But if you have and one to thing be... that was mentioned in that book on Three's Company that I just managed to have a little bit of a flip through, it claims that when that picture was taken, it actually ended up on the front cover of some British newspapers. They were trying to give an indication of how successful George and Mildred had been, or Man About the House in the UK. Earlier on, I was on YouTube looking for some footage of the Ropers appearing on a Pat Boone Christmas special. They're still acting, but they're out of character, and they're doing their little bit of dialogue and what have you before they join the rest of them for a sing-song. Something else popped up in front of me, and... I'm just going to read this out exactly as it appears. It's a promo for ABC from Saturday, the 15th of September, 1979. And the title is The Ropers Detective School and Love Boat 1979 <laughs> ABC Promo. You're way ahead of me. Damn it, it's a bloody program called Detective School. There's free programs. I mean, I've, oh God, what's this? What's this? I actually thought just for a fleeting moment... I thought, how many episodes of the Ropers Detective School were there? <laughs> did, they, did they get past episode one? Did they even get all the way through episode one? Or did they get pulled off like that? Handicap. <laughs> <laughs> so that was hugely disappointing. But no, there is no Ropers Detective School. The episodes that we saw were versions that were shown on cable channel called Deja View sometime in the early 21st century, I believe. But... When the Ropers went into syndication, it was rebadged Freeze Company's Friends, the Ropers. And they took off the original music for the Ropers and replaced it with a new rendition of the Freeze Company theme. And that ABC promo actually makes out that Jack, Chrissy and Joe are collectively known as Freeze Company. Here they are. We've had that discussion many casts ago. Might have even been like two years ago about the idea that Ralph Bates' character is called Dear John, and John Hirsch's character is called Dear John USA. And yet, why can I still not pronounce Fraser's name correctly? Now, hang on, which Frasier. one is it now? Fraser is the spin-off from Cheers. Fraser is the guy from Dad's Army. I thought I was deliberately pronouncing No, I thought I was deliberately pronouncing it correctly there. I still can't get this. This is like the whole interlaced, the interlaced. Mooncat hates John Laurie. I don't hate John Laurie. He's just he's he's putting on a, a phony, over the top Scottish accent. I've got a problem with him personally. So, without wishing to get too much into picking on people's performances, Nicholas Bond Owen one, Evan Cohen less than one. Evan Cohen is a American sitcom cute kid. Nicholas Bond Owen manages to avoid being too cute. He's obviously there for a little bit of appeal to some people in the audience who, oh, isn't he sweet? But he doesn't come across as too horrifically precocious. Yes, I think that's fair enough. I think that Nicholas Bondowin comes across as more himself. And, yeah, whereas, yeah, Evan Cohen comes across as, you know, the sort of American equivalent of the stage school kid actor. You know, as a less precocious and annoying child actor, Spanky McFarland, he would have been better in this because around about the time this was made, he'd have been 52 years old. <laughs> It worked for Chesperito. <laughs> you go down the El Chavo route, that's... Okay, then Jimmy Clibro. Oh, if only. <laughs> I really enjoyed That's My Boy. No, you have to clarify which one you're talking about there. Cause because two. we're just talking about Jimmy Clitheroe, so which one do you think I'm talking about? Our audience are not stupid. They might also be thinking of the relatively recent film from 2012. I don't think Jimmy Clitheroe was in that. 
No, so there's no confusion to be had. Well, there's confusion on my part. Yeah, but you're sick. (laughs) So yeah, Anne Brooks is left with less to do. And I think Anne Fourmile has a much more vital role in pricking her husband's pomposity because his pomposity has a bit more of an edge to it. Also, do you think George and Mildred is a bit ruder? Yes, slightly, yes. And in some ways I'm beginning to think that they get away with things in the Ropers that I'm not sure they would have got away with if it had been written in the US. Actually started out as scripts written by US writers for US television and gone up. I'm thinking the bit where the implication is is that Jeffrey can see his neighbour's bits up his rope. (laughs) (laughs) And he sort of gathers it up like a big nappy. Can we just clarify at this point that this was purely accidental? He wasn't stood there with a pair of binoculars or anything like that. It just so happens Stanley climbing a ladder. And, that, and he's wearing uh, a dressing gown and he's just had a shower and Jeffrey looks up and gets an faints. I'm not sure if that would have been in <laughs> a completely US originated series. It's a bit like some British films managed to get away with a bit more after the introduction of the production code because it's like, well, it's made now. It didn't have to go through a studio censor in quite the same way. I gather that's why The Private Life of Henry VIII was a big hit, just because it was just a little saltier than an American film would have been. And it's set in history, so it's educational. There are interesting little variations between the two shows, because you've got, for example, in the first episode when they're looking at the house, in George and Mildred, George says to... Jeffrey, who's showing him around the house, he said, why is there two toilets? And Jeffrey has to explain to him what B-Day is. Whereas that conversation takes place between Stanley and Helen, the Ropers. And you've got little subtle little variations dotted all the way through the episodes where, like, one character may not have mentioned Jerry, for example. Well, I can hear. There's no equivalent of Jerry in the Ropers. Good. What's wrong with Jerry? Apart from the fact that he's utterly unscrupulous, no moral code ball of evil in a woolly hat. (laughs) The thing is that, is Stanley Roper more antisocial than Ah, George Roper? I have something written down here. Well, George at least has got, he's got a friend in Jerry, and, you know, occasionally you'll see him in the pub and what have you. And whereas Stanley doesn't appear to have any acquaintances or interests or anything about Well, no, one thing I have written down here, the, the difference in attitude between George and Stanley, willful ignorance of social niceties. That's George versus defiance. I think just occasionally Stanley does things purely to enrage Jeffrey in a much more focused way. George might want to wind Jeffrey up, but he can do it without trying. What happens in episode two? There's episode two, the one where they decide they want to sell up. No, that's the last. Okay, so what happens? I watched these in the wrong order anyway. Episode two is where they've just moved in and he has a problem with the bath and they've got the congressman Ah, playing yes, around. yes. It just seems that George makes a fool of himself because he gets a bit drunk and starts going on about budgie seed or something like that. Where Stanley sets up this whole joke about tax. I only remember writing down that it was a better joke than Budgie Seed, but I can't actually remember what the joke is. But it seems more Stanley's like, let's stick it to the man. So I'd say, yeah, that's the difference between George and Stanley in terms of interaction with his neighbours. Okay, how do we think that George and Stanley would have got on had they met? Would they 
have enjoyed each other's company, or would they have just sort of wandered away and say, you know, what a bored old fart he was, both saying that about yes, the other? I don't think they would have got on. Remember, Stanley, as per Norman Felt, thinks he's all that. He dresses in a safari suit with a wide collar. I don't think he'd like to be seen around a weedy little guy in a worn-out tweed jacket and a tank top that probably has holes in it. I think Stanley, if he really had wanted to develop the kind of friends he wanted, would be hanging out with younger guys standing at the corner going, whereas George, I think, would be happy with a bunch of boring old guys who played darts. Now, speaking of war, there was, of course, the appearance of the hot tub in the Ropers. Now, I only watched the first two Georges and Mildreds. I didn't want to get stuck, despite the fact that I've spent the last however many minutes doing nothing but comparing like for like, and I didn't realise I was going to do that. I didn't want to watch all six Ropers and then all six of the corresponding George and Mildreds. So, what's the hot tub like in the corresponding episode of George and Mildred? Well, I would suggest that the... George Mildred equivalent of the hot tub is the pub. Because when characters are going to meet in somewhere other than their own household, that tends to be where they congregate. Whereas we don't really have a pub as such. I mean, the strange thing, of course, about Free's Company is that they actually have not just a, a bar, but it's actually an old English tavern style bar. And yet, Is this so you can have like maybe darts jokes that are left over from well, I, about I the wonder, house? Yeah, I wonder about that. It is quite odd, isn't it? Maybe it's just a little trip. Another to the little thing show. in episode one, there's this business about is it packing up the teapot with the tea still in it? And don't they have to somehow explain about why Helen is drinking tea? Do they say tea or do they say cocoa? No, it's t- it's tea. It's tea with tea leaves because somebody actually, you have the removals man doing the reading tea leaves bit. Oh, yes, yes. But they have to have a little line explaining why Helen drinks tea. Because you can't just assume. It's not just, everybody drinks tea. What are you talking about? So for darts, we'd pool. And this whole business about there being sort of communal areas of the complex is a little bit different. It's a communal area. I thought it was Jeffrey's hot tub and somehow Stanley had been invited. And then that's it. Once he's invited, it turns up and stands No, it is a communal area. They say that. Oh, right. And that's why you've got other people, because you've got sometimes people who aren't either the Ropers or the Brooks in there as well. Well, I assume that Jeffrey was having an affair. That is going to be quite a shock, isn't it? If that was to actually happen in an otherwise very, very lighthearted sitcom. (laughs) That if we suddenly cut to a scene with Jeffrey in the office with his secretary, absolutely nothing is left to the imagination. Practically happens, I mean, it's it's within the marriage, but there's that bit where Jeffrey and Anne start smooching right in front of David. That was odd. That was, yes. yes, that was definitely weird. Okay, let's stop comparing Four Miles with Brooks's. Let's compare Four Miles with Ropers. It's kind of turned a bit into George and Mildred, but that's fine. Do you think somewhere down the line, the Four Miles and the Ropers are going to resemble each other? Is Jeffrey going to become conniving and sexless? Well, hang on, we're comparing the Four Miles with the Ropers. Four miles with Ropers UK, yes. Oh, see, right, I see, right. I thought you meant as in pairing the, the four miles with the American Ropers. I, I, I don't get the impression that George and Mildred were as highly sexed as the four miles appear to be. I don't get the impression that they were ever like that. 
So I've got a funny feeling that actually the four miles will continue sort of the way they are. You know what? Mildred deserved better. I think actually one thing I found a couple of episodes I watched, this is a very sad show. This is a tragedy about one woman. Okay, Mildred Roper and Stanley Roper. How would that have worked out? I suspect that Mildred would perhaps have liked the idea of being with an American chap because, as we said before, I mean, Mildred likes nice things. She likes, you know, like being invited to parties and so on. So at first there might be the suggestion, oh, she's going to party an American. That's like a sort of moving up in the world, so to speak. You know, she'll have ideas about sort of like Dallas and Dynasty and things like that. But in truth, I don't think that she would necessarily think that Stanley was any kind of massive upgrade from George, really. It's just that Stanley has that aggression. He can push back, which means he's less of a wimp. And he's not friends with Jerry. Yes, this is true. Yeah. I'm not sure what show it was that we were talking about the other week when we mentioned another instance of the misunderstanding coming as a result of characters simply not having a proper conversation with each other. But we've got a couple of instances of that in the Ropers. Actually, we've got a couple of instances of it in back-to-back episodes. We've got the inclusion of a storyline from Man About the House in the Ropers. In Man About the House, there is this business where they're clearing out the Ropers' loft to then convert it, and that's when Larry moves in. And as they're doing so, they find these love letters <laughs> that George has written, and at first they think that they're to Mildred, and then they find out that they're not, and so on. That storyline actually plays out in the Ropers, which presumably means that that storyline didn't happen in Free's company. So... Is this stretching truth to breaking point? Helen is unhappy with Stanley because she's discovered the existence of these letters. And rather than confront him with it directly, she says, we're going to go to marriage guidance counselling. And they go to the counsellor's office and Stanley walks out before anything said specifically about that. But you'd think that somewhere in between suggesting that and actually getting there, you'd think Stanley's going to say, hang on a second, what's all this about? <laughs> what's going on? The following episode about Helen's mother and how they think that she's just announced suddenly that she's going to move in with them. That's a bit of a swear because that goes a couple of ways before eventually it's resolved. But, yeah, there seems to be a trait that you've got the the misunderstanding based upon. You just want somebody to blow a whistle and say, right, everybody pipe down. Right, hang on a second. What's all this about? Have this conversation between the two of you. Right, misunderstanding resolved, all done. But, of course, that's not how sitcom works. And sitcoms would be very dull if that is always how they work. But what did you think overall, then, of the Ropers? How do you think the Ropers compares to George? It's not as good. Maybe it develops. I guess eventually you just kind of have to start making different shows. Possibly the problem is is the ones I were watching were definitely George and Mildred scripts. Maybe once the writers, if they managed to get to it, I don't know if they ever got to the stage, once you're writing a Helen and Stanley script, it would be better. The only thing is, is that because Stanley has that aggression that George doesn't have, it just makes things a bit less funny. If Stanley had been by himself next door to the Brookses, the fire between... Stanley and Jeffrey, it might have been a bit more of a standard thing. But right now, you've got somebody struggling with a part written for Eutha Joyce. But Eutha Joyce has taken her character in a different direction. 
And that's partially also because of the nature of British humour, the Donald McGill postcard. There's a lot of that at the centre of it with the weedy little husbands with their weedy little moustaches and their strange fear of sex while also being seized with lust. So it's just buying into a different heritage. Whereas in Three's Company, it's it's young people having fun, which I think is a bit more international. So you asked me earlier, Stanley and George, and I said, no, not friends. Helen and Mildred? I think they would. House on fire. Yeah. I think the two ones would get on perfectly well. I think that Helen and Mildred would be like kindred spirits because the more and more they talked about the husbands, the more they realised they have in common and they would build a friendship from then on. Well, I maintain, I mean, I know that you, you disagree with this, but I maintain that George and Mildred should have turned up in the Rovers. I don't see a sitcom clash problem with this. I think it simply should have happened. Just checking a couple of bits and pieces, by the way, on IMDb. How should it have happened? Who should have come where? Right. You know the movie of George and Mildred? I still haven't seen where... it. Oh, well done. Okay, so the basic plot of George and Mildred the movie is that they get into a bit of baller with Dudley Sutton, and as a result, Mildred insists that George takes her to a nice hotel for the weekend. So they go to this legitimately classy establishment. Now, that's where it should have started. And then people start dying. Well, yeah, because Kenneth Cope is an assassin. Anyway, the Ropers should have been over in London on holiday and they're staying at the same hotel. That's what should have happened. Have we already covered the idea? I don't think we have. Jeffrey Formal, Jeffrey Brooks, I don't see them getting along. No, because I think that they're both social climbers and so the only way that they would get on would be if they thought that the other one could do them a favour and glad to hand them into like a particular club or association or whatever it may be. Well, frankly, Jeffrey and Jeffrey, would they be, either of them be friends with anybody nice? Well, we see Jeffrey having that conversation with Vasectomy Man in The Ropers, and he seems like a fairly well-adjusted fella, but obviously he's there the to one thing I can forward see the differently plot. is if Jeffrey Fourmile goes too far... I can actually see him coming home and finding Anne with her suitcases in the hall. Not that I think Anne would do it, but she'd definitely stand there with the suitcases in the hall and say, look, Jeffrey, are you going to start behaving like a normal person? I don't see Anne Brooks doing that. But then again, I don't see Jeffrey Brooks doing anything really nasty. He's just a snob. He can probably be cut down by a joke. Yes, and also I think that Jeffrey Formile, he's actually got a little bit more self-awareness. Occasionally he uses self-deprecating humour, whereas I don't necessarily see that in Jeffrey Brooks. A couple of last points. First of all, you mentioned earlier on that we will talk in a future cast about spin-offs that should have been. According to IMDb, In an episode of Malcolm in the Middle from 2002, a character says, it's Larry who should have got the spin-off show, not the Ropers. (laughs) Now, what do we think? Do do we think that should have happened? I mean, I don't know. I don't want to preempt our forthcoming I don't know enough about American Larry. (laughs) Would that be what the show had been called? That nice sort of hamburger font? Well, I mean, I've only just worked out that in America... Judd Hirsch's sitcom wasn't actually called Deirdre on USA. (laughs) 
Nyla is Donald Trump's reality show called The Apprentice USA when it goes out in, in PC. But okay, what do we think about, say, British Laddie? Do we think that Doug Fisher could have been bottled by Also, in the last episode of Larry Sanders Show, Gary Shandling in character gives this sort of farewell speech. And right at the outset, he says, you know, in television and creative pursuits, you try to do something new, try and do something different. Nine times out of ten, you end up with the Ropers. And you can hear Jeffrey Tambor laughing <laughs> off screen, and I suspect that he didn't know that that line was coming. I do like the difference between British and American episode counts. The Ropers, it wasn't a success. It only lasted for 28 episodes. George and Rildred, massive, huge, runaway hits. It ran for 38 episodes. Hang on a minute. Does that mean there's more episodes of The Ropers than there are of Pottage? Yes, but then again, there are more episodes of The Monsters today than there are of the original Monsters. Good God. <laughs> and that brings us neatly onto next week's show when we will be talking about The Monsters today. Don't and... even. <laughs> This is going to sound a bit silly because I'm going to hypothesize about something which we could very easily find out the answer to. But given that we only watched Series 1 of The Ropers and there are 22 episodes to go in Series 2, it may be that the answer to this question is actually in Series 2. I'd be quite surprised if it wasn't. But I'm deliberately not looking it up. At the end of Episode 1, Helen says to Stanley, of course we can afford it, the new house. Of course you'll have to get a job. Now, in George and Mildred, ah. eventually George does get a job as a traffic warden. What job do we think that Stanley Roper is going to get? And I'm assuming that this is going to be something which is going to last beyond one episode. So something which he's potentially going to hold down. What do we reckon? Because we never see that in series one, do we? He becomes a crossing guard and he's nasty to the kids. Or he tries not to be nasty to the kids. And they're sort of all overly sweet or precocious to him and you start to see the vein throb in his forehead. Ah, yes. And one of the kids who's crossing every morning is David Brooks. So if Stanley gets annoyed at David, ah. then he's going to end up having an argument with Jeffrey again. Okay, so outrageously, the Ropers does not appear to have a DVD release anywhere on the planet. Ye gods! Which is quite surprising considering that you know, the entire Freeze company's out there. I think Freezer Crowd is out there as well. What? No, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Apparently, Freezer Crowd is not available on DVD. Oh, okay. But the complete Freeze company definitely is. How come Freeze Company has got one of the best theme tunes of any sitcom, hasn't it? It's a belter. And that version by the American Marching Band is on <laughs> YouTube. Oh, I listen to that every day. I should say that as my ringtone. And the Ropers is a nice wee silly theme. Freeze a crowd? That is... Oh my god, that's awful. It's the most sickly... I mean, it makes Joni Loves Chachi Whereas Robin's Nest is groovy. Yeah, damn right, they should have got Richard O'Sullivan to do the theme music for Freeze a Crowd. But it really is, it's just the most awful, lovey-dovey pish. And it's such a disappointment, because they're even alluding to it, they've got the same sort of font as Freeze Company as well. So you think, oh well, it's going to be something good, but... Okay, so when are we going to do that then? When are we going to do Robin's Nest and Freezer Crowd? Sometime after we've done George and Mildred. So next time on the Sitcom Club, we're returning to the counterintuitive phase like we had with Going Straight and Wrong Reggie Perrin. What are we doing, Mooncat? 
we are appearing in unfamiliar surroundings. Even though we've been around for a decade, we are suddenly going to be appearing for the opposition. We're going to be looking at the goodies at London Weekend Television. I think I'll have things to say. And if I don't, we'll, we'll have things to say about what happens when you change companies. There may be also mention of Television Southwest. So listen out for that. In the meantime, all of our action-packed previous editions of the Sitcom Club are available at sitcomclub.com. I'm going to say something which is going to blow your mind, Ocho. Frequently, we've mentioned the archive editions. We often say that one of the shows that we enjoyed the most was our discussion of Not in Your Nelly. Can you believe that that was actually the sixth podcast and we're now beyond 60 podcasts? Yeah, that was the point where it all went wrong, really. We peaked too soon, didn't we? So anyway, if you've got anything for us at all, you can tweet us at the sitcom club or you can get in touch with us on Facebook. And indeed, you can email us at feedback at sitcomclub.com. In the meantime, Ocho. Goodbye. This is Hey Home and Can't Co. Saying you have been listening to the sitcom club. <laughs>